invite you to take your Bible and turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians in chapter 1. I'm going to read the whole chapter, chapter 1, even though I'm not going to speak about every verse. 1 Thessalonians in chapter 1 says this. Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. And therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. This is the word of the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Holy Father, thank you that once again we are gathered around your table. Thank you for what a gracious and generous king you are, that you invite us your subjects, your creation, into your throne room, and not just into your throne room, but into your family. We thank you that we are sons and daughters of the living God. And we pray that you would use these words that you spoke to this church in Thessalonica so many years ago. We pray that you would use these words to speak to us today. Not just speak to us, but shape us and fashion us into the kind of people, the kind of church that you want us to be. In Christ's name, amen. Well, this doesn't ha happen very often, but this morning I have a three-point sermon. A three-point sermon, and I'm not going to keep you waiting. I'm going to tell you them right now. Here they are. Point number one, we, you and I, the church in Thess Thessalonica, but also you and I, all of God's people, we are chosen by God to partake in the gospel. That's point one. Point number two, we are changed by God through the power of the gospel. And point number three, we are commissioned by God to proclaim the gospel. Okay? We're chosen by God to partake in the gospel. We're changed by God through the power of the gospel. And we're commissioned by God to proclaim the gospel. Okay? Those are our three points this morning. That's where we're headed so point number one, now during our Tough Topics 
sermon series. I preached a whole sermon on election, so I don't need to belabor the point here, but I think it's appropriate for us to pause and once again be filled with awe and wonder and gratitude at the fact that God Almighty, the creator of the universe, has chosen us to be part of his family. That's an amazing thing. That should always stir wonder and amazement and gratitude in us when we're reminded of it. So why did God choose us to be part of his family? Normally when you choose things, it's because of the value that they bring to you. Right? I choose this and not that because this is going to benefit me more than that. Right? So in gym class, when sides are being chosen, if you're the captain, you choose the player that you think is going to make your team better. That's why you choose that person. Right? If you're a very competitive person, you don't care if you like that person. It doesn't matter. You just choose the person that you think is going to be best for the team. Right? That's how it works. Or if you're, if you're picking a car... You, 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 you decide what you need your car to do, and then you think you choose the car that's going to do the best job for the best value. Or if you're choosing a vacation, same thing. You weigh the options. You try to pick a place that's going to provide the best holiday for your family. That's how we make choices. We weigh options. We consider outcomes. We make the choice that we think is best. Is that how God went about choosing his people? Was he assembling this spiritual dream team, right? His covenant people. And he was trying to choose the best, the most capable, the most talented, the most loving, the most kind, the most spiritual, the most Christ-like. Did he choose those types? And did he pass over all the second-rate humans who don't quite measure up and aren't quite as kind and loving and spiritual? Absolutely not. That's not the way this draft went. None of us would have been chosen if that's how it worked because none of us is capable. and None of us is worthy of that distinction. So why then did God choose us? Well, the whole idea of being God's chosen people didn't originate with the Thessalonians. It didn't originate with the New Testament. God chose Abraham to be the father of Israel, his chosen people. God already had a chosen family by the time of the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. It was the work of Christ to expand the boundaries of God's family and to make a way for us Gentiles to be included in that family as well. But why did he choose Israel over all the other people that he could have chosen? God explains that. If you've ever wondered that, God explains it in Deuteronomy and chapter 7. In Deuteronomy chapter 7, you can look it up later if you want, it, it's an explanation, but it doesn't answer all of our questions. God basically says to Israel, Israel, why did I choose you? I chose you because I love you. And why do I love you? I love you because I chose you. That's the explanation that God gives in Deuteronomy 7. I, 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 I chose you because I love you. I love you because I chose you. All right, well, that's an explanation, but... but it, it, it hardly explains things unless you think carefully about it. I chose you because I love you. I love you because I chose you. Obviously, that, that, that brings a smile to our, to our face because it just sounds so circular, right? So what is he actually saying there? Well, what he's saying there is I didn't choose you because of who you are. I didn't choose you because of what you've done. I didn't choose you because of what you will do. 
I chose you because of who I am. I chose you because of what I've done. See, see how that explanation puts the emphasis off of us and onto God. I chose you not for you. I chose you because of who I am. You didn't earn your way into my family. I simply chose you because I love you. And therefore, there's nothing that you can do to wreck this. See, there's the payoff. There's the benefit. There's the blessing. If you didn't earn your way in, then you're not going to mess up your way out. (laughs) And that's good news, right? There's nothing you can do to wreck it or to get God to stop loving you. I love you because I chose you, not because of anything you've done or will do. And once we grasp that, then we're able to enter into his rest, right? That, that, that lifts the burden off of our shoulders, right? Because it's not about us. We didn't earn it. We cannot wreck it, so we can just relax and enjoy it. That's the blessing of being part of God's covenant and chosen people. So we're chosen by God to partake in the gospel. Secondly, we're changed by God through the power of the gospel. Once we're chosen, once we're partakers of the gospel, we're changed by the power of the gospel. So how does Paul know that the Thessalonians are in fact chosen by God and part of God's family? Right? Paul doesn't have access to the book of life of the Lamb who was slain, right? Where he could just look it up and see if they're in there. Paul's not looking at that book. So how does he know? He knows because he can see the impact that the gospel has, on, has had on them, right? He can see it. That's how he knows. He says, for we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because, here's how we know, we know that he's chosen you because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power and with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. So notice, notice that he says our gospel came to you. He didn't say, we brought the gospel to you. He says, our gospel came to you, right? It's almost as if he speaks about the gospel as if it has a life of, of its own, right? Our gospel came to you, which of course it does have a life of its own. What is the gospel? The word itself, as you know, is not a magical word. It wasn't even a Christian word until Christians started using it. And then other people stopped using it because they didn't want to be associated with it. But before that happened, it was just a regular word, and it meant good news. This week, as I was preparing this sermon, I learned about a very old Roman inscription that referred to the birth of Augustus Caesar as the gospel. And all they meant when that, in that inscription was simply that it was good news that Augustus Caesar was born to the world. But that's what the word means. It means good news. In that sense, any good news is the gospel. But when the New Testament writers used that word, they took it and they applied it to a very specific item of good news. They said, this is the good news. This is the best news. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Here it is. Here's the gospel. News doesn't get better than this. Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to earth, 
to live a perfect life and then to die on the cross to pay for our sins. And he then rose again from the dead, defeating death on our behalf. And all those who receive this message by grace through faith receive the forgiveness of their sins and the gift of eternal life. That's the gospel. That is the good news when you read about the gospel in the Bible, when the authors refer to the gospel, that's what they're talking about. The good news that Jesus, the Son of God, died for our sins and rose from the dead and has offered us the gift of eternal life. That's the good news. And it's important for us as Christians to recognize that when we're talking about the gospel, we're not talking about mere words or ideas, right? We're not talking about abstract concepts like democracy or capitalism or, 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 or whatever, some, some sort of um, system of thinking or philosophy. It's not just words. It's not just ideas. The gospel is the power of God. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Paul says the gospel is not just words. It is conveyed through words. Words are the conduit. Words are the pipeline. But the gospel comes attended by the power of the Holy Spirit. And when the Holy Spirit then brings gospel conviction upon us, convicts us of the truth of the gospel, then we're changed in the process. So Paul says, I know that you have been chosen by God because I saw the power of the gospel bring you under conviction and change you. How so? How did they change? Well, they stopped living the way that they had been living. They stopped living for themselves and their own desires. They stopped conforming to the pagan culture that they were living in. And they became imitators of Paul and Silas. And Timothy, and ultimately, by becoming imitators of Paul and Silas and Timothy, they became imitators of God. What does that mean? Well, Paul gives us an example. He says, look, in spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with joy given by the Holy Spirit. So he's saying, look, here's how I know that you have been chosen by God because you have been changed by the gospel. And here's how I know that you have been changed by the gospel. Because you were afflicted and persecuted for your faith and you responded with joy. That's how I know. I saw it. You were willing to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ and in your suffering you rejoiced. And that's how I know that the gospel has come to this place. That's what he says. How is, it, how, uh, how is Paul making that connection that by being persecuted and suffering and responding with joy, that made them imitators of God? How does that make them imitators of God? What, do you remember these words from Hebrews? When, when the author of Hebrews writes in, in chapter 12, he says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who... For the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. So he suffered, he was persecuted, he had a cross that he was crucified on, and yet for the joy set before him, he endured it. He was persecuted and responded with joy. Just like the Thessalonians are being persecuted and responding with joy. And Paul says, when you do that, you're imitating God. You're acting like God. That is what we are called to. 
we are changed through the power of the gospel, and we are made into imitators of God. I, w- I was reminded of a perfect illustration of how this works when I went to see the movie The Hiding Place this past Thursday. It was in theaters for a couple days, and um, I w- we went to it, our family and, and another family went to it, and uh, I was expecting going to it, I know the story, I've read the book, I was expecting to be encouraged, I was expecting to be edified by the faith of Corey Ten Boom, and of course I was, what an amazing woman, but I had forgotten what a godly and faithful woman her sister Betsy was. If you're familiar with the story, you know. You know, Betsy, Betsy didn't survive the concentration camp, and so she's, she's less famous. She's less well-known than her sister Corey. She didn't travel the world, world preaching. She didn't write books. But Betsy was the one with unwavering faith. Betsy was the one who defied the guards and read the Bible to the women in the camp every night. Betsy was the one who refused to let bitterness or hatred colonize her heart, right? She had every, every reason to become a bitter and hating person. And yet she refused to give in to that. She had words of love and forgiveness even for the cruelest of her captors. She experienced much affliction and she responded with joy. She was an imitator of the Lord. The Thessalonians were imitators of the Lord. And you and I are called to be imitators of the Lord. And this passage contains the key for how we do that. It's not that we just make up our minds to, all right, from now on I'm going to be nice. (laughs) Or just make up our minds, right? From now on, through tremendous exercise of my own self-will and discipline, I will decide to forgive those who have wronged me. Right? That's, 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 that's not it. That's not how it works. Here's how it works. God chooses us. God reaches out and chooses us to partake in the gospel. Right? To be part of God's family. And then God changes us through the power of the gospel, and we become imitators of him. And then we're empowered to... Rejoice in affliction and love our enemies and forgive seven times 70 when we've been wrong. You might, you might meet a very nice, you, you, you might be a very nice person, but you're not able to do that apart from the power of the gospel. But thankfully, that God has provided us with exactly what we need. Now, I know in general, we're not, we're not supposed to speculate about whether or not someone is saved, right? Like, that's, we're not supposed to do that. That feels kind of judgy. But that's what Paul is doing here. And Paul says that when he saw the impact of the gospel on the Thessalonians, when he saw the conviction that came upon them, when he saw how the gospel radically changed their lives, when he saw that they had become imitators of God, then he knew. He knew that they were among those whom God has chosen. Their lives gave evidence of that. Do ours. Do ours. Could someone look and know? Uh, here's a, this is a question I was once asked by my friend Mickey, who recently passed away. I know you've heard me talk about him. Mickey grew up in a communist country that was officially atheist. He was required to serve in the military. He smuggled a Bible into boot camp in the military. 
uh, and it was found. His, his secret little Bible got found in his um, footlocker. And so uh, he knew he was in huge trouble, right? He was not supposed to have a Bible. And so he was marched into the office of his commanding officer. On the way, as he's going, he knows what's up. He knows what the problem is. He's very nervous. He prays to the Lord for courage and strength. He goes into this office. The Bible is sitting there on the desk, right? So he's totally busted. The commanding officer comes in. Mickey is standing at attention. This is the military. The officer tells him, sit down. Mickey says, sir, that book on your desk tells me to honor and respect those who are in authority over me. And so if you don't mind, out of respect for you, I'm just going to keep standing at attention. That led to an interesting conversation. The result of that conversation was no punishment for Mickey. He was released and sent back. He attended, Mickey, years and years and years later, he attended the church where I was pastor in Milwaukee. And one day after the service, we were hanging around, he was talking to me. He said this, he asked me this question. He, the, keep in mind, he grew up in a country where Christianity was illegal. He said, Jason, Pastor Jason, if Christianity became illegal in this country, like it was in mine, would the government have enough evidence to convict you of being a Christian? And then he said, I know you preach sermons, but let's imagine that they're not allowed to use your words against you. Your words don't matter. I'm talking about your life. Would they have enough evidence to convict you of being a Christian based not on your words? I know you talk about Jesus all the time, but based on your life. And he says, and let's just imagine that the fact that you go to church is not enough to convict you. Because let's be honest, anyone can go to church, whether they're a Christian or not. Going to church doesn't prove that you're a Christian. So what evidence is there in your life, in your actions, that would irrefutably prove that you love and worship Jesus? That your whole life is devoted to following Jesus in faithfulness? That you orient your whole life around the Lord Jesus Christ, is there enough evidence to convict you? It's a good question, isn't it? As, it was asked to me by a man who absolutely had lived it out in his own life at great cost to himself. Apparently, the Thessalonians were living out their faith in that sort of bold, unmistakable way, like, like Mickey did. In his context, like Betsy did, Betsy Ten Boom did in her context. Through the power of the gospel, they had become imitators of God, not by their own strength, not by their own discipline, but by the power of the Lord. May the same be true of you and I. That's point two, and here's finally point three. The Thessalonians were chosen by God to partake in the gospel. They were changed by God through the power of the gospel. And they were then commissioned by God to proclaim the gospel. Here's what Paul, Paul writes. He says, And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has become known everywhere. Good news is meant to be shared. Right? It's like when you have good news, you just want to tell somebody, right? That's how good news works. 
It, 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 it's unsatisfying to have good news and to not be able to tell someone, right? It's like bursting out of you, right? And it, and it completes the joy, right? When you have good news, it's great and you feel good, whatever the thing is, but you complete the joy when you tell someone, right? We had our first child. That's great news. We're celebrating. And what did we do? Call people and tell them. And that completed the joy. Now other people are joining us in our joy. Good news is meant to be shared. It's designed to be shared. It completes our joy to talk about good news. That's our commission. God has commissioned us. Speak it. Tell it. Live it. Let the gospel ring out from you. This is the only place in the whole Bible that that word, the word translated ring out, it's the only time it's used in the whole Bible. It literally refers to a bell that has been struck and the sound rings out and goes forth. The sound waves go forth and they impact all those within earshot. The gospel was ringing out from the Thessalonians. And as a result, their faith became known everywhere. So the question we have to ask is, does our faith ring out from us like that? Like, like, like we're bells that have been struck, and now we're resounding with the news of the gospel. Does our faith ring out? It, it rang out from Betsy Ten Boom. She was like a bell that had been struck, and she rang out with the joy and faithfulness and forgiveness, despite the suffering and the hardship. The gospel rang out from my friend Mickey. He ran faithfully all the way to the finish line. The gospel bell was ringing out and sounding forth from him throughout his whole life. Is the message of the gospel ringing out from you and I? Does the message of the gospel ring out from this church? Are we reaching out into this community with words and actions that proclaim the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Are we participating in the spread of God's kingdom globally through our prayers and through our giving and through our sending? You get the impression that there was no containing, no stopping the proclamation of the gospel by the Thessalonian church, right? You get the sense, just imagine this, you get the sense that if this little church, right, we know it wasn't a big church. We know it was a relatively small group of people. If this, if this little church of, uh, of, of the church of Thessalonica was transported, just imagine, across time and across geography, and if somehow they, they, this church that Paul's writing to landed in Leduc in the 21st century, first church at Thessalonica, just down the road, just imagine it just for a second. What sort of impact do you think they would have on the community? Do you think that people would notice this little church? I do. If they were living like that, if the good news of the gospel was ringing out from them, if they were responding with joy to suffering and persecution, I think people would notice. I think people would be talking about them. I think they would be engaged in the community, blessing them. I believe the gospel would be ringing out from them and impacting all those within earshot. So why can't we be like that? We can. We can. It's the same God that we serve. It's the same gospel that saved us. It's the same spirit that dwells in us. It's not different. It's not different. We can be like that, not in our own strength, not by our own power, 
We, right? It's not in us, except that God put it there. We can, because we've been chosen by God to partake in the gospel. We can, because we've been changed by God through the power of the gospel. And we can do that because we've been commissioned by God to proclaim the gospel and let it ring out. So let's let it ring out in our singing and in our prayers and in our words and in our actions and in our engagement with the community and in our conversations with coworkers and neighbors and friends and family because that is what Christ-centered churches do. They're all about Christ and they're all about the gospel. Let's pray together. Holy Father, it's great reading about the church in Thessalonica. I, I find it interesting to learn about those people and that church and the ways that you change them and bless them and use them to, to bless the area and to spread the kingdom. That's all very exciting and interesting. Uh, but I, I pray that more than being exciting and interesting, it would be true of us too. That we would learn these lessons about what you did by your spirit and by the power of the gospel so long ago in that place with those people and that you would do the same thing here. That's our testimony, Lord, is that you are the same yesterday, today, and forever. You haven't changed. The message of the gospel hasn't changed. The power of the Holy Spirit hasn't changed. Your love for people hasn't changed. Your desire to build your kingdom hasn't changed. And so, Lord, here we are, a bell. Would you be pleased to strike us? Firm and loud, so that the gospel rings out from us. Lord, would you empower our witness to the community so that the love of Jesus Christ is on display in our words and in our actions. Thank you for the good news of the gospel. Thank you for calling us to partake and be part of your family. Thank you for changing us from the old way we were into the new way that we can be because we're filled by your spirit. And thank you for honoring us with this commission. And I pray we'd be faithful to that and that the gospel would ring out from us. Amen.